All right. Well, tonight we're talking about sinology. And so this is the study of sin, which is called hamartiology. Um, it is, uh, comes from the Greek word for sin. Is this thing not going to work on me? I've been having all kinds of technical issues today. There we go. Okay. There we go. So hamartiology, which comes from the Greek word for sin, which we'll see in a moment. And uh, so this is an important topic to, to talk about. Because uh, just like anything, uh, in order to know where you're going or what help you need, you've also got to know what situation that you're in. Um, before you receive any kind of diagnosis and treatment for a problem that you have in your body, you have to know what that diagnosis is. you got to know what's going on. And so uh, in order for us to understand how salvation works, we also have to understand how sin works. And um, like I said earlier, the, the notes on here are a font smaller because I tried to pack as much in as I could. Um, but even this really just kind of scratches the surface um, and uh, gets a little bit into that discussion that probably most of us have heard about Calvinism versus Arminianism and different viewpoints on that, which we'll jump into a little bit tonight, but really we'll focus on that more next week to try to explain some of the differences there. Um, and so sin is what we're talking about tonight, uh, which is an important topic. So let's talk about sin basics. Um a basic definition of sin is that sin is the fundamental unbelief, distrust, and rejection of God and the human displacement of God as the center of reality. Um, and so just this idea that we reject what God says, who God is, what God stands for, his desires for our life, and then we place ourselves as being the center of the universe. And when you're growing up, you might have heard your mom or dad say, hey, look, you're not the center of the universe, so the world doesn't revolve around you. Well, whenever we sin, we've kind of made the decision that the world does revolve around us and that even God and his commands and his desires revolve around our desires uh, rather than his. And so that's just kind of a basic definition of what uh, sin is. Uh, some biblical words that are used to describe sin um, these are not necessarily words translated as sin, but just different things that kind of wrap around this concept of sin is depravity, corruption, inattention, error, guilt, godlessness, ignorance, iniquity, lawlessness, uh, lust, missing the mark, perversion, rebellion, transgression, treachery, wickedness, badness, and unrighteousness. How, how would you like that to be put after your name? <laughs> you know, that's not a real good list of descriptions. We don't really like that, but um, <clears throat> that is just kind of the concepts that wrap themselves around sin. And so you can see that sin is not a pretty picture. Uh, sin is a ugly concept, an ugly thing that is happening in our life. And so um, uh, we need to, to realize that this isn't something that we need to, uh, to be a part of. All right, the common words for sin uh, are kata, which is Hebrew for missing the mark, um, pasha, which is Hebrew for re to rebel, trespass, or to betray, and then hamartia, which is Greek for missing the mark. And so um, whenever uh, they, they use this a lot of times talking about archery, uh, whenever you know, they would practice archery, if they, hit the, if they missed the mark, they would say, hamartia. That may not be exactly how they said it. Um, you know, it might have been, you know, hamartia, you loser, or something like that. I don't know. But um, they, you know, they, they said something to that effect. Um, because you missed the mark. You know, you missed that target that you're shooting for. And so that's kind of the, the idea that is consistent from the Hebrew through to the Greek, uh, this idea of, of missing the mark. 
All right, let's talk about the essence of sin, because uh, a lot of times we can kind of pinpoint things that are sins, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, those kind of things. Uh, but underneath that, there's some sort of essence that is causing sin to happen, causing sin to well up. That is kind of the foundation of it. Uh, there's been lots of suggestions over the years. Theologians have discussed back and forth what it is. Um, some of those include pride, lack of peace, uh, because if you don't have a lack, if you don't have peace in your life, then everything is uh, disjointed and dysfunctional. Uh, selfishness, where what you want is the most important thing. Idolatry, sensuality, not necessarily talking about sexual sensuality, but just uh, being driven by your senses and your desires. Um, that could probably also be considered lust, lust, the lusts of your body. Um, rebellion, autonomy, and unbelief. And so those have been some suggestions, and I'll uh, kind of tell you in a, lo a little bit what I think sort of the best definition of that is or essence of it is. Um, sin is a violation of the cre creator-creature relationship um, and, uh, in which we are obligated to follow the direction of our creator. So, you know, if you – I've used this example before. If you have, uh, you know, built a world – like my kids build worlds out of Legos, then they get to determine – um, what that world is going to look like and how that world is going to function. If uh, my son comes in with a spaceman Lego with an alien head on it, well, that's fine because it's the world that he created, and he can decide how it's going to function. And if that you know, alien spaceman Lego gets married to one of Addison's little girl Legos, that's fine. That's, that's the world that they're creating, and they can determine how it's going to happen. God, as the creator of us and the creator of our world, gets to determine how we live, and how we function. And so sin is a violation of that relationship where he's telling us how to live, telling us what's best for us. We decide on our own um, how we're going to live, and so it violates that relationship. Uh, both Satan and Adam and Eve desired to be out from under the control of God. Um, so uh, that was their desire. We'll see that in a moment. Um, we'll kind of look at a little bit more about this specifically, but that was their desire was to be out from under the control of God. God said, you, except for the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, for the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so you think about that. They had unlimited freedom except in one area. You know, just everything was theirs to do with what they want, to enjoy however they wanted, except for like 10 square yards, <laughs> you know, of the Garden of Eden. There was this one tree that they couldn't eat from. And you know what they wanted? They wanted that tree. They wanted to step into that area that was under God's control and take control of it for themselves. Um, and so that desire is the basis of our sins as well. We desire to determine our own destiny. Uh, Adam and Eve wanted to de determine uh, what their destiny was going to be, what they were going to look like, how what they would know. Um, because God said, the day of you eat of it, you will surely die, right? And then Satan told Eve later, he said, no, 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 God, God's just holding out on you. He knows that the day that you eat of that, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And so up until that point, they only knew good. So they realized there was something that they were lacking. They just didn't know that that lacking was going to be disastrous. So they should have just believed God. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Um, but they wanted to determine their own destiny. And so this is what I believe the essence of sin is, kind of that foundation concept for sin, is the desire for autonomy. Um, the desire for autonomy fits all these descriptions and is foundational to the rest of the suggestion. So all those things we saw earlier, pride, selfishness, idolatry, 
Um, I just kind of, I fall in the group that thinks that autonomy kind of sums those up or forms a foundation of those. Because what we really want whenever we sin is to say, no, 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 God, I can do this on my own. You know, I can figure out on my own what's best for my marriage. I can figure out what's on best, uh, on my own, what's best for my job, or I can figure out on my own what is going to bring me the most pleasure. And so we decide to branch out on our own and do what God has said to do not uh, do. not do. And so autonomy, our desire to be in control, to be the one who's in charge, to be out on our own, kind of underlies all those other things. Because when we think I can do this on my own, then pride is welling up in my heart. Whenever we say, I want to go do this on my own, then we're being selfish about the things that we want to go be a part of. And so a uh, desire for autonomy is kind of the essence of what sin is. All right. Uh, let's talk about the origin of sin, because we all want to know where sin comes from, right? And so um, sin occurred in Satan and Adam in, in the same way. As we look at the uh, how Satan fell into sin and how Adam fell into sin, there's exact parallels uh, because sin entered the world and entered the human race through Adam. But sin was also present in the influence of Satan there in, uh, in creation as he would fell from heaven and uh, appeared there in the garden. And so both were created sinless. Okay, we know that we've, we've heard and read many times about how um, God created Adam uh, and then he created Eve. Uh, he said that they were very good. Uh, he said that his creation was very good. And then at the end of the description in chapter 2, it says uh, both of Adam and Eve were naked and had no shame. So they were created in the goodness and perfection of the garden. Um, Ezekiel 28.15 talks about Satan. It says, from the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. And so Satan was created blameless as one of God's premier angels. Um he was blameless in his ways until wickedness was found in him. So he and Adam were both created sinless. Uh, both had the blessing of being in God's presence. Uh, we know that in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves because they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. Uh, so um, that tells us that they had probably experienced that before because they understand what that sound was. They knew that sound wasn't just a lion coming down or an elephant coming down. They had this specific sound that they knew was God's, and so they went and hid themselves. So they had had some sort of relationship with him in his presence there in the garden. Um, and Ezekiel 28 tells us that Satan experienced the same thing. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. And if you remember... Um, in the vision of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he's before the throne of God He, in his vision. He falls down on his face because he says, I'm a, a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Uh, he figures he's about to be destroyed because of his sinfulness and the presence of a holy God. And God says, um, he one, tells one of the angels, and the angels takes a, uh, from the tongs of the altar, he takes a fiery stone, and he touches uh Isaiah's lips and says, your, your sin has been cleansed. And so this is kind of that same picture. We see that that, that fiery stone, that altar is right there in the presence of God. And now this says right here that uh, Satan himself, one of God's premier angels before he fell, was right there in the presence of God, walking among the fiery stones. So he was an attendant in the temple complex there in heaven, wherever the altar of worship is in heaven, right there where God dwells. 
Satan was there in his midst. And so Satan experienced close fellowship and presence of the Lord. All right, uh, both Adam and Adam and Eve and Satan were unsatisfied with their perfect state. Uh, they were not satisfied with the, the way that God had created them. Uh, another description of Satan coming from Isaiah says, Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. This in Isaiah 14. So Satan wasn't satisfied being in the presence of God day in and day out, being one of his premier attendants. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be like God. And so he wasn't satisfied with God, how God had created him. And Adam and Eve were the same way. Genesis 3, 5, uh, Satan says, In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so whenever he said that, Eve realized that there was something that she was lacking. And so she became unsatisfied with how God had designed her and Adam. And she became unsatisfied with the perfection that God had placed them in. And there was one thing that they couldn't have, and that was the one thing they, they wanted so bad. And, and in, a, in a way, Satan, was, Satan did not lie in this verse. You know, He said, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Yeah, they became similar to God. We'll say similar. They became similar to God, knowing good and evil. They became aware of evil for the very first time. God was already aware of what evil was. So in that moment, they gained knowledge that God had really intended for them to never have and never experience. And we'll actually talk about that more next week when we talk about the, the, problem, of, uh, the problem of evil. So you just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, and then finally, both uh, sinned because they acted rebelliously within their God-given freedom. And this is another thing that we'll talk about next week when we talk about the problem of evil. Uh, this is a key, key point here. They sinned because they acted rebelliously within their God-given freedom. If God did not, if God wanted to, he could have created Adam and Eve robots that had no choice. They would have never eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They would have had no choice to disobey him. He could have created them that way. But somebody who does not have the option of rejecting you also truly can't love you. And so they, God created them to where they could have a loving relationship uh, with with him. Um, he didn't make them and then stick them in cages and force them to relate to him. He wanted people to choose to relate to him uh, in the way that he had designed them. And so those are parallels where we can kind of see the origin of sin taking place. And it took place as how and how it took place as Adam and Eve became dissatisfied with who they were and decided to reach for something else. Okay. Any questions so far? You guys hanging with me? Just think, we're already, we're already past halfway through. All right, let's talk about the consequences of sin, okay? First thing is this. This is a, something we always need to remember. Sin always promises satisfaction, but it always disappoints. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a good example. How many of you love buffets? Go ahead, raise your hand. All right, the rest of you, I know you do, but that's all right. I'll tell you what, I love me a good buffet. Now, keyword on good. There are some buffets where I go once and I'm like, okay, I'm not going back again. But, you know, like Golden Corral, that's some good buffets. I could hang out at the bread zone 
the whole time. Just get a roll, dip it in butter, eat it. You know, just just all day long. You know, um, uh, Chinese food buffet, a good Chinese food buffet. Like they're gonna have to make fried rice three times just to keep me keep me satisfied. But um, you know, a, a, a buffet. The point of a buffet is to what? Eat until you're stuffed. Eat until you are satisfied. But you know what's gonna happen? Like five minutes, five hours later, you're gonna be hungry again. You know, you're gonna wake up the next morning and be like, huh, I need some breakfast. A buffet promises satisfaction, but it's never going to ultimately satisfy. And that's how sin is. Sin does satisfy for a moment, but it leaves us feeling empty in the end. Uh, and that's the thing we need to remember. Sometimes we think, well, sin doesn't satisfy. Well, actually, yeah, it does. It just doesn't ultimately satisfy. If sin, uh, if we hated to sin, we wouldn't do it. Does that make sense? Like, for example, um, uh, I'm not a fan of asparagus. Okay, anybody? Amen. Amen. This asparagus. Okay, but Melody makes asparagus taste as good as it possibly can. Okay, and so I will eat her asparagus even though I don't like asparagus. All right. So she kind of masks it. She cooks it in such a way where I I can look at it and I know it's asparagus. I know I'm really not going to love it, but I'm going to like it. I'm going to like it. And so I'll go ahead and eat it. Well, sin's kind of that way. We look at sin. We're like. This isn't going to satisfy. This is not going to be exactly what I need. But Satan paints it in such a way, and I'm not equating my wife with Satan. I just want to make that clear. Okay? <laughs> but Satan paints the sin in such a way to where we look at it and we think, okay, well, it tastes good enough. I'm going to go ahead and do it. But we know in the end it's not going to hopefully satisfy. Bad example, bad example. I love you, babe, and I love your asparagus. I just sinned. Um, <laughs> But she knows because we had this discussion at lunch today. So I was like, it's good. I'm gonna, I'm, she's going she's gonna to make nothing but a asparagus for the next week. So, <laughs> All right, let's move on before I get myself in more trouble. Uh, hey, here, here, this was a, an appropriate slide. Sin damaged relationships <laughs> between humans and God, humans and creation, humans and humans, and men and their wives. Um, and so... Just like that asparagus has damaged my relationship. No. Um, and so this is reality that we see in um, uh, happening in Genesis. Okay. So as, after sin uh, takes place, you see that uh, God begins handing out curses. And, um, and then in, Gen in chapter, uh, the end of chapter 3, we see that God removes humans from the presence of the garden. Uh, they, he says we must remove them from the garden, otherwise they may take hold of the tree of life and eat it and and live forever and so um basically it was a gracious thing that he did by removing them from the presence of the tree of of life because otherwise they could live eternally in a sinful state and he knew there was something better for them and so he removed them from his presence and that relationship was broken there in the garden so it damaged relationships between humans and god between humans and creation one of the curses is that there would be enmity between the snake and between woman and so there, you can already see the beginning of that. Uh, you also see that uh, Adam would have to work hard to till the ground and to try to get produce and food from the ground, and it would produce thorns for him. And so the ground was cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin. There's relationships are broken between humans and humans. Just a chapter later, we see Cain uh, and Abel, and Cain kills Abel. Uh, you know, that relationship begins to, to break down, ultimately leading all the way to, to Noah. The, the place becomes so violent that God wipes them out 
and starts over with Noah. And then obviously a broken relationship with man and wife, that most intimate of relationships that humans can experience here on earth, even that is tarnished um, because of wife's struggle against the submission of her husband and a wife's uh, husband's need and requirement to care for her, but his desire to be selfish and to care for himself. And so sin damaged relationships between all those different people in between creation. And then ultimately sin caused death. It caused spiritual death. It caused physical death and eternal death. Spiritual death is just that state of alienation that we have from God. Um, we were separated from God. And so this is the truth that was that happened there as they ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, we know that Adam and Eve didn't drop dead physically that day, but they did drop dead spiritually. In that moment, their soul was broken, and the relationship between them and God was broken. And so they experienced spiritual death in that moment. And then they experienced physical death later on. You know, if they had never sinned, they would have never tasted physical death either. But because of that, because creation was broken, our bodies were broken, and we begin to decay. Um, you know, our bodies are, are, you're closer to death the day that, the, the hour after you're born, than you know, you were the hour before. Um, we are always getting closer and closer and closer to death. Our bodies are in the process of dying from the time we are born to the time we actually die. And so physical death is a reality. And then eternal death. Um, eternal death is that separation from the life-giving God that awaits those who are still, still spiritually dead uh, when they physically die. And so our physical death, because of our spiritual death, if we're not believers, leads us to eternal death, you know, that eternal area of separation from the life-giving God. And so everything that we're experiencing now is a, is a, is a measure of common grace, um, because there are people all around us who do not believe in Jesus Christ, but they're very alive. They have life in their body. That's the common goodness that we all experience from our God. But there's going to come a point when we physically die that we move to an area where we do not experience. There's no such thing as common grace anymore. The only grace that is experienced is the grace of those who live with God in heaven, in his eternal dwelling place. In our eternal states, those who do not believe in him, they will not experience the goodness of God in any way whatsoever. And we call that eternal death. All right. Let's talk about the completeness of sin's effect. And uh, I'm using the, t the term total depravity. I know that that is a loaded term, uh, but um, I think it's accurate. So talk about total depravity. If you're familiar with um, Calvinism, and we're going to talk about that more next week, the ins and outs of that, the two different sides. But uh, that's the, the tulip uh, analogy uh, where, you know, the, the tulip stands for every, all these different aspects of salvation process. Well, T is that the T of tulip is total depravity. So it describes how we are as believers. And total depravity says that all aspects of a human's existence are corrupt, both body and soul. Titus 1.5 says, To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. And so um, the, uh, the fact that we are... Uh, depraved or that we have this sinfulness in our life affects every single part of who we are. Um, and we can see that in very practical terms. Um, you know, some people argue about that. You, you have some people like the early Gnostics who John was writing to who believed that your body was sinful, but your soul was not, or that the soul was good, but the body was evil. Um, but this, you know, Scripture tells us consistently that all, we're completely depraved, completely sinful. 
And the way that we can use that or understand that is like a, a passage like this that says our mind and conscience are defiled. Well, what's in our heart comes out through our body. And so even our, our body participates in sinful activities whenever our heart or our mind commands it to. And so all of our, every one of our faculties we use for sin, and we can recognize that if we look at it clearly. Another point is that people are completely unable to please God on their own. Um, Hebrews 11.6 says, not, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so it is impossible to please God of our own power. We have to live by faith in order to please God. And so anybody who does not live by faith in Jesus Christ is not pleasing to God. And so this doesn't mean at all that uh, you can't do good things because it's very clear that people just in general do good things. Uh, we had a huge hurricane hit uh, you know, the East Coast uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, a tsunami hit Indonesia just a few days ago. These are terrible things, and it causes people all over the world to, to rise up, rally up, send money, send supplies, go over there to help and do all those kind of things. And it does, they don't have to be Christians to do that. There are all kinds of people who are not believers in Jesus Christ who are going to do good things. But those things are not pleasing to God because the one thing that God asks of us is our allegiance to him. It's to faith through Jesus Christ to be back in a relationship with him. And then those things that well up within us because of the power of the spirit working within us, then those things please God. And so the, the way that we please God is to be in a relationship with him through faith. All right, and then finally, talking about the completeness of sin's effect, all people are universally born as sinners. And we'll talk about this more in just a moment um, because this is actually a, a debated topic, but I put it here anyway because I believe without a doubt it's true. Um, and um, uh, typically, Baptists fall into this category without a question that people are universally born as sinners. So that from the time you came out of the womb, you were a sinner. Uh, uh, David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, that he was conceived in sin. So the very moment when he was a one-cell human, he was a sinner, is how David, David feels. And so all people are universally born as sinners, okay? So let's talk about that for a little bit, getting to the back page, the transmission of original sin. So this is a, this is a big topic, uh, and this is what we'll spend most of the rest of our time on. Um, and... Uh, the, the, this is one of those fun sections where we'll spend a lot of time on it, and at the end, I'm just going to say, eh, we don't really know. Um, because it's one of those things where this has been debated since the, the founders of the early church. Uh, what is, how is original sin transmitted? How does Adam's sin affect us? And even till today, we're still debating it. Um, that's, one of the, that's one of the hot topic issues right now in Baptist life is... Um, those who believe in five-point Calvinism and those who uh, do not. You know, they believe in three points or two points or whatever. Um, and so um, the part of this comes with this uh, transmission of original sin. So, um, so let's kind of tackle this and um, get some insights into it, and then you can study some more, uh, get smarter, and um, make your own decision, okay? Romans 5, 12 through 21. Uh, Get my Bible out. So Romans 5, 12 through 21. So this is a large passage. I don't have it on the screen. So if you want to open up your copy of God's Word, 
there you can or flip over to it. Uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21 is kind of the key passage in this discussion on how does Adam's sin affect us. And so um, in this section of Scripture, uh, Paul kind of introduces it, and then he's going to make comparisons between Adam and Jesus all along the way to show how what Adam did and how it affected us, Jesus undid it on the cross. Um, and so that's kind of the point of, <clears throat> of this passage, okay? So Romans 5, starting at verse 12, reading through the end of the chapter. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. That word type just means like he's a model, he's a representation, or he's a, a similar pattern to who Jesus was. Okay? But the gift, verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he's talking about how Adam's sin affected us in this way, and if Adam's sin affected us this way, then how much more should God's grace affect us through Jesus Christ? So he's basically saying Adam's sin did a sin, but God's grace is bigger and better, and he brought salvation. Verse 18, So then, as through one trespass there is no condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life, for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's kind of a kind of a, a hairy passage, but um, it's one that uh, we can hopefully kind of get some ideas about what it's saying. Uh, I'm going to try to, like I said, this is a centuries-long debate that I'm going to try to explain to you in 10 minutes. <laughs> and um, so I'm just going to, this is a, I would say this is a bird's eye view. This is more like a space shuttle bird, space shuttle eye view of this whole, uh, this whole topic, okay? So let's talk about a few points that Romans 5.12 makes that are very clear. The first is that sin entered the world through Adam. So verse 12 opens up, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that one man is Adam. So uh, now you're, I know that all you guys are sitting there think, saying, but Eve ate the apple first. Well, that's true. But men are the heads of the household, and the command was given to Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he was supposed to relay that to his wife. And so he is the one that carries responsibility for that action taking place. And so Headship comes through uh, the man. Uh, and so every time that uh, uh, Paul talks about this, he's referring to Adam. And so sin entered the world <clears throat> through Adam. The next thing verse 12 says is sin brought death. It says it entered through the, through the one man and death through sin. So 
As sin entered the world through Adam, death was right along on its heels. And then death spread to all people. So death, uh, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people. And so that's kind of showing that, uh, that nature that is coming along through Adam. And then death spread to all because all sinned. And so sin entered the world through Adam. Death came through sin. Death spread to all people. And because all people sinned, death spread to all people. And so um, this last point right here, death, uh, death spread to all because all sinned, is the part that theologians argue about. Because the question is, how does sin and guilt and death spread to me because of Adam's sin? And how is it spread to you because of Adam's sin? And so the question is, how do all sin? Okay, in what way do we all sin? The, the, the two options um, basically are that, um, uh, does it mean that, that we sin ourselves, that we actively sin? Or does it mean that we are guilty of and culpable in Adam's sin? So that's kind of the, the debate that, that reigns right there. And we'll kind of, I'll kind of explain it here in a second. And so there's four main explanations for this, okay? Let me just pause for a moment. Anybody confused to the point that you actually have a question? Or are you just so confused that no question will help you at this point? Y'all good? Okay. All right. I'll just assume you got it. We'll keep going. All right. So first explanation is called Pelagianism. Um, you know, just, just FYI, you usually don't want your name to be at the front of an ism when it comes to Old Testament or uh, uh, old, old scriptural debates because they usually named it after you because you're a heretic. Um, and so uh, Pelagius was one of those guys. Um, uh, and he said, we do not inherit a sin nature from Adam, nor are we guilty of his sin. Rather, Adam set a bad example for humans that we all follow. We have the free will to live as a sin, uh, to live a sinless life. And so basically what he, mean, he means is that uh, Adam's sin nature stopped with Adam, and Adam's guilt stopped with Adam. It was not transferred to his children and then to us and to, uh, you know, on down the line. We're all guilty of our own sin, and we all have the choice to make. And so what Pelagius said was that you could literally live a perfect and sinless life, keep the law, and earn your way to heaven. Uh, that's why he was called a heretic, <laughs> because that is far from the truth. Um, and so what he said is that basically Adam set a bad example for how we shouldn't live. But the thing is, we always go the same direction that Adam does. Uh, we are just fallen by, well, can't be say fallen by nature. We're just, we tend towards sin um, because we, you know, should make those choices. Um, the problem is Psalm 51.5, which I mentioned earlier, David said, I was conceived in sin. And so he believed that from birth he was sinful and that at the very moment of his life starting that he was a sinner. Um, and so so this is a big issue for this viewpoint. Um, and so Pelagianism is one of the explanations. You can just mark that one out because um, you can't be a Christian if you believe that. We'll, just, we'll, just, <laughs> we'll put it that way. Um, Arminianism is the next one. Uh, and this one you've heard me mention a couple times tonight because this is kind of the, the opposing side to Calvinism. And so most of the time people say, well, you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. And you don't want to be a full-fledged Arminian because uh, they can kind of tend a little bit over there. They used to be called semi-Pelagian <laughs> believers um, or people. And so, uh, but 
most Armenians kind of tend towards really believing that we are guilty of our sin. Um, uh, but then they, they have some free choice stuff in here. So let's talk about it. We'll get more into it next week. Uh, Armenian says that we inherit Adam's sin nature and their guilt, his guilt for sin. However, God provides preventing grace so that each person is born free of the judicial penalty of Adam's sin, which basically nullifies inherited guilt. And so just to put that in English, what that means is that you are born with a sin nature that you get from Adam, and you are guilty of participating in his sin. And so uh, you, you get all that from Adam. You get that from your dad. Um, but because God is so good, he gives a preventing grace so that you're basically, even though you're guilty of it, you're born in a sphere of innocence. You're not, you're not uh, given the judicial penalty for your sin. So it's like you get a speeding ticket. Everybody knows you got a speeding ticket. It's on the camera. Uh, whenever the officer came up, uh, he said, do you know why I'm pulling you over? Yes, sir, I was going 100 miles an hour on a 30. And um, there's like five witnesses around you. Your kids sat in the back seat. Everybody knows you were guilty of speeding. So you go to trial. Uh, they pronounce you guilty. And the judge says, but I'm not going to make you pay the penalty for your sin. Okay? I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, you don't have to worry about it. Okay? Not because of anything you did or not because you had faith. I'm just going to, eh. you didn't ask for it. You don't really like me, you know, but I'm just going to, I'm going to cover it over for you. That's kind of what this is saying. And so that we're born free of that penalty. And the reason that we have this, that he had this idea is because babies die. And nobody wants a baby dying in their sin and going to hell. And so this was really that John Wesley kind of formed this idea of preventing grace. The problem is, it's not in scripture. In fact, Romans 5.18 says, so then as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. So Romans 5.18 says, everybody is condemned. It doesn't leave it up, leave it up for discussion. Everybody is condemned. Um, so uh, pre preventing grace is not in the scripture. And that's the big issue with the Arminian viewpoint. So let's move on to representative headship. And uh, this is where uh, Calvinists kind of, uh, kind of come in, one of, the, one of these two options. Representative headship. Adam, as the head of the human race, stands as representative of our kind, and we are therefore responsible for his sin. We inherit his sin nature, his guilt, and his consequences. So let me give you an example of this. Um, the Nazi party took over Germany. Uh, Hitler was the ruler of that. All his little underlings were also a part of his scheme, and all the German people allowed him to rise up. Don't let me say all. Most of the German people allowed him to rise up, take control, and were enjoying the benefits of being under the Nazi party in Germany. But then Germany declared war. They lost the war. And so whenever the Allies began determining what the stipulations were going to be for Germany, like you can't have a military and you can't build military equipment, you got to pay back this much you know, retribution to these nations, every citizen of Germany had to be responsible for those uh, stipulations. So their taxes were going to go pay for those repairs. Every member of citizen of Germany could not have a military. Every citizen in Germany would not have that protection. So even if they didn't participate in the war by going to the war, because they were underneath the leadership of the Nazi party, they all received the consequences of their actions. And so what this says is that 
Adam as representative of the human race, whenever he sinned, we all sinned, we all became responsible for his sin. A good example of it from scripture is the story of Achan. Whenever Achan, after uh, Jericho, they, the battle of Jericho, they were told not to take anything, but Achan hid some of the treasures in his tent. Uh, and then it was found out that he had hidden those tent, those things in his tent, and he confessed that. They took him and all of his family and all of his property and killed them. And so because of the sin of Achan, all of his family was destroyed. And so what, that's what this, this says, is that Adam, as the head of our race, because he sinned, we all bear the burden of his sin. Um, the problem in this, like I said, none of these are perfect. The problem in this lies in the comparison to Christ that we just read here in Romans chapter 5. Um, if Adam's sin's effect was universal, then Christ's saving effect would have to be universal as well. Because it talks about how because of sin's one action, Adam's one act, yeah, because of Adam's one action, everybody experienced sin, and then it compares Adam to Christ. That would mean that because of Christ's salvation, everybody is saved. And so there's a problem here with the universal aspect of the comparison. And so while I think this is a really strong viewpoint, um, it isn't perfect. And so um, so just keep, keep that in mind that there are some good arguments for it, but it, it isn't a perfect example. And then the fourth one, uh, this actually comes from August St. Augustine back in the, in the old school days. Um, it's called natural headship. And it basically says all humans were present in Adam, in his loins, literally, when he sinned. And since we were all present in Adam, we participated in his sin. So I've mentioned this before, that there, is a, there was a Jewish belief that all the descendants of a man were present with him in his loins. Um, and so your whole progenity was there with you. And so we, as all being descendants of Adam, were literally physically there when Adam sinned, according to this viewpoint. Um, and so uh, because we were all present with him, we all participated in his sin. Therefore, we bear the burden, the guilt, and the responsibility for his sin. Um, a place that this kind of comes to bear in Hebrews is, is in Hebrews chapter 7. In, in a sense, it says, In a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So we're talking about whenever Abraham gave an offering to the priests of Salem, Melchizedek. Uh, it says, In a way, Levi himself gave that offering because he was with Abraham in his loins is kind of what that means. And so there's a, there's a sense where Scripture kind of references this and agrees with this thought process. The problem lies, again, in the comparison to Christ. Christ's righteousness is not passed on because we are the offspring of Christ, um, having participated physically in his atoning work. Um, even though Paul talks about us being crucified with Christ, you know, uh, in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Um, we were not really physically there with Christ. We enter into Christ and enter into the sacrifice that he made because of the faith that we exhibit, but we were not physically there participating in the atoning for our own sin and thus receive the benefit of it down the road. And so even here, the comparison between Adam and Jesus kind of breaks down uh, with this example. So the conclusion is that it is not clear enough from Romans 5, 12 to 21 to settle the situation, to settle the discussion. Um, uh, some kind of participation is implied in the passage, 
I, I believe it's pretty clear that we're all linked to Adam's sin. Nobody, I don't think you could make a case at all that we don't have a sin nature or that we don't bear some sort of responsibility or impact by Adam's sin. But Romans 1, 16 through 17 says that righteousness comes by faith. Uh, this is the foundational verse for the entire book of Romans. Um, and it says, uh, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so righteousness comes by faith, not universalism, obviously, not because we were there with Christ on the cross. Righteousness comes by an act of faith on our, behalf, on our part that is empowered by the Spirit. Then Romans 2, 6 or 8 places responsibility for choosing correctly uh, on the person. Um, it says, He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. So there's a sense of responsibility on those who choose sin um, that, uh, that we, have to, we have to take care of. So this is one of those just get me out of here kind of verses, kind of statements right here. That's why the vast majority of Orthodox Christians agree that all people inherit a sinful nature. They disagree on whether we are guilty of Adam's sin. And so this is what that whole argument is about. And so I don't have this written down, but here's kind of what I want you to get from this. Um. We don't know how, how we are guilty of Adam's sin. We don't know if we participated back then or if we just received the guilt uh, because it's transferred onto us. But here's what we do know. We are all sinners. We are all born with a sin nature. And we all are going to die if, in, in eternity separated from God if we don't confess that sin through faith, seek forgiveness, and give our lives to Jesus Christ. And so when it comes right unto it, it doesn't matter how you became a sinner. It matters that you realize you are a sinner and that you give your life to Christ in faith. And so while people can write books and books and books and discuss this for literally 2,000 years, the thing that we don't need to forget is that we are all sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we need a Savior. And um, so if somebody wants to discuss this for hours on end, just make sure that you end with that realization. All right, uh, a few big sin questions. Um, we got, our, we got one minute to cover all five of these. Just kidding. Um, the first one, are some sins worse than others? Don't look at your page. Yes or no? How many of you say yes? All right, how many of you say no? All right, good, you're all right. Um, <clears throat> so are some sins worse than others? The answer is yes. Some sins are considered more abominable, abominable and thus receive greater punishment. Um, we don't have time to go over through this, but you remember Jesus talking about whenever he was, preaching the kingdom to the cities who were Jewish cities with Jewish inhabitants, and they reject his message. Um, he says that they will receive a greater punishment than the Gentile cities who reject the message. Uh, he also references Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in those days than it will be for you. Uh, there is a sense where greater knowledge leads to greater responsibility. And so if you know more and you reject Christ, you're going to get more, more, more punishment, so to speak. Um, uh, there's also some other, other scriptures that talk about uh, a sin being greater, a sin being more abominable, and um, stuff like that. So there is a sense where some sins are considered worse than others, or because of your knowledge, your sin is going to cost you more than somebody else's sin. But the answer is also no. <laughs> are, some, 
Are some sins worse than others? No, all sin is against an infinitely holy God and require punishment. So it doesn't matter if you have one sin in your life or a million sins in your life, you're both equally guilty before an infinitely holy God because one sin is a rejection of God. It only takes one rejection to be guilty of putting yourself on the throne. Okay? What is the unpardonable sin? Um, what's the unpardonable sin? The, Jesus referred to this in uh, Matthew chapter 12. He said, therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. And so the context of this um, is that Jesus was casting out demons. The Pharisees came around and said he does so by the devil, Beelzebub. Uh, and Jesus says, well, if I cast out demons by Satan, then I'm fighting against myself and nobody would do that. And he says, plus your exorcist, your Jewish exorcist cast out demons. What's the difference between me and them? And then he says, so you know that I cast out demons by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and if you say that I have a demon and call what I'm doing by the Holy Spirit evil, then you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, and that will be unforgivable. So basically what he's saying is whenever you, this is in the context, the willful and final rejection of the Holy Spirit who is working through Jesus by attributing God's work in Christ to Satan. So if you see what God is doing, what the Spirit is doing in Jesus, and you say, that's, that's the devil working, then you're basically calling the Holy Spirit Satan. And you're sticking with that declaration, that is an unforgivable sin. And so if you say that and you don't recant of that, re repent from that, then that's unforgivable. In this context, um, oh, I didn't put the next part on there, sorry. Um, in today's context, seeing and recognizing the work of the Holy Spirit in the work of Christ, yet refusing to live by faith and rather choosing to live for something else is how we can see that today. So if somebody sees God at work in the person of Jesus Christ and recognizes that as divine and recognizes who God, who Jesus is, recognizes the truth, yet still rejects him, that's an unpardonable sin. Because if you maintain that rejecting of Jesus Christ, there's no hope for you. And in Hebrews, whenever it talks about somebody who has tasted the Holy Spirit, yet has gone away, for him there is no further uh, repentance that can be made. And that's what I was talking about. Somebody who has experienced and been around the work of the Spirit, yet still choose to ignore that, there's no hope for them. Um, only those who see what's going on in Christ and follow him will be saved. All right, last thing, what is the sin leading to death? Uh, in 1 John 5, it says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. And so there's two options for this, both of which could fit this. Um, the first is that you see a brother living in continual unrepentant sin, thus revealing he's not a true believer. That's why brothers in quotation marks. So sometimes people put on the facade of being a Christian, yet their life reveals that they truly never surrendered to Christ. And so basically what I'm saying is go to those people and confront them about that and hopefully lead them uh, out of that situation. Uh, the other option, which I really think this is more what this is talking about, is that a true believer who has begun living in a way that tarnishes the name of God, God therefore decides to take his life and remove the offense to his name. And so we see this in uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. 
uh, they lied to the Holy Spirit and dropped dead. Um, and so God was preserving the integrity of his name there in the early church. Another example is in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, uh, when uh, there's a, a man engaged in sexual misconduct, and uh, Paul says, put him out of your fellowship and let God destroy his body so that his soul will not be saved. And so it shows that there's a true believer who's chosen to rebel against God, and it's causing a tarnish on the name of God or the name of the church. So God decides to take him out. He says, I'm not, I'm not putting up with this. You're not going to tarnish my name in public. And so I'm going to take, take you out. Hebrews says that it is a, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. Um, and talking about don't, don't toy with the glory of God. Um, be zealous for the glory of God. Maintain the glory of God. Don't be a believer who walks all over the name of God and parades sin out in the world and is like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian because God doesn't put up with that. And so I believe that's what that is referring to. Next week, we'll ask a last couple of questions. What happens to a child who dies before confessing Christ? And how can an all-good, all-powerful God allow evil to exist in the world? Those things will introduce our talk on salvation. All right? Well, if you have any questions, come see me at the end, and uh, I'll catch my breath, and then we can talk about it. Uh, let me pray for us. God, you are a great God, and you love us, and we thank you that you have given us the ability to overcome sin through the work of the Spirit in our lives. I pray that you will help us to understand as best we can who we are uh, as believers, uh, who the people are that don't believe that are around us each day, what kind of situation they're in, and how we can help lead them to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, just give us a zealousness um, for others. Uh, and like the pastor said this Sunday, Lord, help us to see the sin in the world and to get angry at that sin and then do something about it. Lord, thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.